Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. This election, once again, a majority of white women voted for Trump. Why have white women throughout history aligned their politics not with women of color, but with white men? And why does white women's support for Trump still come as a shock to so many? On White Picket Fence, a new podcast from Wonder Media Network, host Julie Kohler seeks to understand how white womanhood in America has been constructed, how it's evolved, and how it's affected our politics. It's a podcast about what it will take to build a multiracial coalition of progressives. Listen and subscribe to White Picket Fence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who did not to join our majority. This is a special episode where we're going to dive into what it is like uh, to be a local leader right now in the midst of COVID. So governing during COVID, but specifically governing during COVID and during a time where the federal government uh, refuses to do anything to provide any relief for COVID. So we're going to talk to my friend Quentin Lucas, who is the mayor of Kansas City. We are going to talk about it from a Kansas City perspective, but I want to be really clear, if you're not from Kansas City and you're listening to this, don't stop listening to it. This is not just a, an episode for people from Kansas City. Uh, that is the context for it, but we're really going to talk about this, uh, or I'm interested in this, from the perspective of broadly, what is this experience like governing at the local level while the federal and state government is giving you inadequate support. Quentin Lucas is a dynamic and a fascinating person. He is a former uh, city council member in Kansas City. Uh, he is a former law professor and a successful uh, attorney as well. He is somebody who, uh, as a child, uh, was uh, homeless and grew up with with a uh, uh, for a time was homeless. He and and his mother. He is the uh, he was raised by a single mother. He is one of the youngest mayors of a major city anywhere in the country. Uh, I have known him for several years, uh, and he is a, a deeply impressive person who uh, is somebody that, frankly, Kansas City is, is awfully proud of, and I think he's doing a very good job uh, leading the city through a really difficult time right now where there are a lot of, a lot of pressures in a lot of different directions, uh, and I'm happy he's here. Quentin, thanks so much for doing this. It is great to be with you, uh, and look forward to uh, having some fun as we talk today. Now, let's start here. What were you doing just before this? Just before I talked to you, there was a, a, a discussion about youth activities in Kansas City, high school sports and that sort of thing. And uh, it is a little frustrating. I'm a little frustrated now because the idea is that the science is telling us that there are things we should do to protect our young people, to protect our families. Our urban inner city school district superintendent was saying, wait a minute, I've got grandparents who are helping raise kids. I've got so many that could be exposed. But uh, in a city like mine and probably many other American cities, it turns out 
folks run a good deal more conservative, like right next to us. And so there was the discussion of nobody is getting COVID-19 from, you know, the schools and the parents are fine and the teachers are fine. Some things that are just maybe what I would call not true. But um, look, when you, <laughs> when you live in a state where masks are still controversial and where there are uh, COVID denial type folks and people are still saying that it's nothing but just the flu, you deal with this. And so I was on a long call, unfortunately, and I'll just let you guys know where I failed at one point. Um, we are giving recommendations, not requirements, that um, you know there not be that many parents in the stands uh, and that folks keep social distancing and that kids on the bench wear masks. It sounds really weak, it's really disappointing, but that is America 2020 when you're kind of fighting uphill in states like Missouri, states like Kansas to try to make sure that uh, COVID threats are recognized. And I wanna be clear for people listening, when you say recommendations instead of requirements, you're talking about it because it's coming from a group that you're just a part of. Like within the city, you're making requirements, but it's a big metro area. And so it's you're working with people who oftentimes don't even believe that the virus is a real thing. I mean, Jason, the darkest thing is that like all these people who I didn't know all the things that they would defend later on. I mean, you know, bars should be open till three. I'm like, I could have sworn y'all didn't like people partying like that. You know, like, (laughs) you know, the weed shops should be able to open as much as they want. I mean, it's so intriguing. And then, yeah, I mean, we make, we, we do a lot of requirements in Kansas city, Missouri, and, and probably, you know, I don't know where my future is in politics or if they'll like vote me out in two weeks because they hate wearing masks, but nevertheless, probably my hardest political work so far has been sometimes bringing our more ex-urban jurisdictions on board for things like responsible stay-at-home orders or like making sure that you don't have that many spectators in the stands, at least without social distancing. And frankly, making sure that we're, we're getting money to help support local public safety. I mean, it's so interesting that there are people that will wax poetic to me about back the blue and all of that. But when we say, hey, we have like 100 cops down right now on COVID quarantine, Um, Can you give us more money and support for overtime, for masks, for PPE, for frontline workers? It's kind of like, well, it's not a real thing. We're not going to do another stimulus, Mitch McConnell, and uh, we'll all just wait to see what the heck happens. You know, you're both uh, in Kansas City. Just for those of us who are not in the city, give us a sense of what the culture around mask wearing is within uh, your jurisdiction, Mayor, and then how it may be different just across the county line. Or the city you know, for us inside the jurisdiction, it's actually pretty darn good. I mean, uh, for the most part, uh, a lot of us, I think, get it. And even more to the point, which is what I usually do as a human, most who, even if they're like, oh, I don't know if it's fully important, they're still like, I'll just wear a mask because I respect other people. For example, there was a guy, I'm, I'm not a big Trump guy. But uh, he's <laughs> not a big, not a big Trump guy. Right? <laughs> right. He sent me a picture of myself saying, you know, this is my mask. And it said, this mask is as useless as Mayor Lucas. And I took that in a flattering way. I'm like, good, you're wearing a mask, you know, like. <laughs> there's, there's a real irony there, by the way, which is it's very useful, as I imagine you are. <laughs> Thank you. I think my mother would appreciate that and at least some percentage of the electorate. But nevertheless, so like in the city, it's good. But the counter, oh, my God. In fact, because we're just among friends and probably thousands of listeners, um, I will just say it this way. It's like night and day. It's like kind of this same place versus something that's just drastically different. This will be used against me later. But um, we're in in Kansas City and maybe in like a suburb or two nearby. 
people are really getting it. But if you go like 20 minutes east or south of where Jason lives um, and west, south of where Jason lives, uh, it, it is very different. You have people that are trying to, in the Kansas side, there's a Democratic governor who issues mask orders but has to allow for exemptions, which all of the counties then apply because, you know, damn that woman for making us be safe. On the Missouri side, our governor is, uh, you know, good Christian man. And, uh, you know, I've learned from Emanuel Cleaver, that's what you say, basically. And, uh, but nevertheless, you know, has a different view on what type of dictates that we can allow. And so then it all trickles down. Probably, guys, that's the most interesting thing about it. When I'm talking to superintendents who are in kind of the suburban part of Kansas City today, and they're like, well, the governor doesn't have an order, the Missouri State Activities Association doesn't have an order, and so therefore, why should we? It's really actually kind of hard to be like, you know, yeah, you should care because they're like, but everybody else is, including the president, is telling me not to care. So, you know, it'll get everybody will get over it. The kids will recover. Everything will be fine. And that's that's the tension we have. And it really impacts the policies and the politics of places like I'd imagine Kansas City, St. Louis, Detroit, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, all these places where you really are impacted by a state where many people have a very different view. Well, and it brings us to a good moment to sort of uh, drill down on the Kansas City specific situation to give people some context. And before we do that, like one of the things that affects it so much is this regionalism, which is, you know, you can put all sorts of different policies in place here. But, you know, we are a metro area, like most places where we're interacting with people from all over the metro, people go across city lines, county lines, whatever to shop to go to work. And on top of that, the hospitals are largely like a lot of places, centralized in the in the urban center of the metro area. So what happens in the region really affects us. So with that said, just talk a little bit uh, about, you know, the statistics and like what things look like in Kansas City right now as far as COVID. So in an unmitigated way, it just looks awful. We increased by 1,300 cases as a metro yesterday. By context, about a month and a half ago, we were at about 750. Um, two to three months ago, we were probably in like the low 100s, 150, 200. That, that's bad, right? Even the people that say there's this huge percentage chance that you recover, that's still really bad because that many more people are dying. We've had probably in Kansas City over the last two months, three months, we probably matched the total number of deaths that we've had the entire crisis. I mean, it's, it's something that's increasing dramatically. And then the thing that happens, because we do have several pretty big acute care facilities that take in a lot of these folks, but that means that there are not beds for all of the other issues. I mean, the uncounted COVID deaths are those that many of us saw in the stories from New York City in the spring and other places, the folks that couldn't get the treatment um, or were dying of heart attacks back at home or all these other types of issues that are impacting us. And so, you know, it, it may not seem the same way because media doesn't have the same focus on here. And I understand that. But, um, you know, I'm afraid that we will get to the crisis type experience they had in the Northeast in the spring months. Um, here in the winter months. You're just seeing the numbers happen that way. You're seeing deaths happen. You're seeing more people get touched by it. Just yesterday in Kansas City, um, in a 24 hours period, we lost two Kansas City firefighters. Um, those are the sorts of things that are dramatically happening for us right now. And I continue to be jealous, frankly. I remember in the spring looking at the fact that the governors of Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey could say, all right, we have a lot of overlap here. Maybe we should all get together and work together. You know, we have some groups that work together, but unfortunately they're kind of worked together in, eh, is this really as much of a problem? 
can we really buck the political winds? And that presents more challenge for us. Ravi, the only problem with having uh, the Helix Midnight Lux mattress uh, that I was paired with through Helix through the quiz that I took is that I just really like staying in bed. And so there was no school of the day. It's the day before Thanksgiving. So when, when True came in and was like, want me to get up at 6.30 in the morning, I had had this fantasy that I was going to sleep in uh, till 8 a.m., and it was hard for me to get out of bed. And, and at first, I was uh, kind of irritated with him. And then when I did uh, get out of bed, I noticed that he was wearing a fake mustache that looked exactly like the real mustache that I've grown. And of course, I couldn't stay upset with him at all. But the point of the story is that Helix mattress, like you just want to stay in it as long as you can. It's delightful. You listeners, too, uh, can have a bed that you just don't want to leave. <laughs> and uh, you should go and, and take the Helix quiz. I did. And I was matched also with the Lux Midnight Mattress. Uh, because I wanted something with a medium firm feel uh, and I sleep on my side. Yeah, so if you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, you can add on sheets and pillows or whatever else you need for your bed, and then the mattress comes right to your door. You don't even need to go to a mattress store again. Helix is awesome. You don't have to take our word for it. It was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. You go to helixsleep.com slash majority54. You take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash majority54. Jason, I don't know about you, but I'm a documentary junkie. Maybe my favorite uh, documentarian is uh, Sir David Attenborough and we just discovered this new tool called Curiosity Stream that has some of uh, David Attenborough's work and as well as others like Stephen Hawking, Nick Offerman, Chris Hadfield. And they have just thousands of streamable documentaries and nonfiction TV shows and history, nature, science, food, technology, travel, and more. Um, and that's Curiosity Stream. I am pumped about this uh, because I fashion myself a person, this is kind of ridiculous, but I, I think of myself as a person who, if I didn't do the work I do, I would be a documentarian. This is based on absolutely nothing. Like this could be, this is just as realistic as me saying, if I didn't do this, I would play center field for the Kansas City Royals. Because the truth is, there's no evidence really that I have any of the skill set necessary to be a documentarian, but I really enjoy documentaries. And like a lot of people, I just assume I would be good at the thing I really enjoy. But the people who uh, have their documentaries on Curiosity Stream actually do know what they're doing, and they're an excellent collection of documentaries. So uh, they have this new feature. If you can't decide what to pick, it's just it's called On Now, where you can just watch a continuous stream of documentaries. So get an entire year of streaming for just fourteen ninety nine when you sign up using our code Majority Fifty Four. Before we get into like what is needed at the federal level and what the level of frustration has to be with not getting that support, take us back to the spring because you put in a, uh, a stay at home uh, in the spring. And like you just talked about, obviously, from a statistical number of cases or number of deaths standpoint, we're at a worse point now than we were then, which a lot of people are saying, well, why aren't they doing something? And I know that the answer to that is, that the big difference is support uh, from higher levels. So let's start with, walk us through what that decision was like and what that environment was like several months ago. And then let's talk about now. Yeah, it was, it was 
terrible. I mean, like it's everybody who is a ma anti-masker or COVID denier tends to think that like all these mayors want more control. We don't. We want we want money. We want spending. We want people coming to our city. So it's early March in Kansas City. We have a Big Twelve basketball conference tournament. Um, and so that's bringing people from throughout the Midwest and the Southwest to our city. They spend lots of money. It's an annual tradition. Um, we see what's happening elsewhere in the country. We see that um, some wise jurisdictions are going to the lockdown level to try to avoid bigger issues. Uh, and so, you know, I talked to my health director and we came to the reality that uh, we're going to have to try to do that too, because as you all remember, nobody knew what was going on. And nobody wants to be in a position where we say, well, let's just be cowboys and do nothing and then have thousands of people in our community die. So I think we made the very difficult choice to say, let's go with a pause. Let's go with a shutdown on things. It started with a, a restriction in event sizes in Kansas City. Um, I'm proud of the fact, frankly, that also in Kansas City, about the same time as a lot of eastern cities and west coast cities were doing some of the same things, we were putting in place closure orders for some of our schools. We were putting in place some of the other issues that you would need, not just event restrictions, but later when we got mask requirements. That was tough, but I'll tell you something that made it easier. Um, there have been maybe out of his many days as president, two or three where I said, see if the president, um, Trump, actually recognizes what he could do to try to save people's lives, then everyone would be better off. And there was one day in April where he said, yeah, it looks like we may need to shut things down for a little while. And all of us were like, oh, my God. And then, oddly enough, in red states, you could do that. And then about like six hours later, he tweeted to undermine the very thing he had just said. But, you know, we had this moment where we were able to all work in unison. We were able to actually have wise, responsible stay-at-home orders that I don't care what people say. I think made a world of difference. There is not differences. There aren't differences in the physiology of a human being in New York City versus in Kansas City. Right? The only difference was that the spread was limited, that we limited activities where you could see the spread in those types of uh, behaviors. And we were able to, I think, save lots of lives in the rest of the country. And the other thing going on then that's a big difference from now is there was federal relief. Like, would you have been able to make the same decision if there were no federal relief at the time? Absolutely not, because at the time we all knew and expected and it was a, it was almost impressive for our country. You don't always think the highest of FEMA, particularly if you remember anything from Katrina, but you, you, we saw FEMA was activated, your state emergency management. People were saying, hey, do you need to get a motel so that homeless people who have tested positive have a place to quarantine where there still is support? And they said, go ahead and do it, Kansas City government. We'll make sure you're reimbursed for it later on. Whereas now we're all sitting there, funds have largely already been expended and you're saying, we still have issues. We still have first responders that are, are dealing with issues. We still have a homeless population, particularly as we get to the winter months. Is there help? Everybody's saying, well, you know, it's just there's, there's too much. It's too important. We have in some situations our own United States senators. And by the way, I will say I would love it if Jason ran for U.S. Senate again, but that's a chat for another day. But nevertheless. Say more about that, actually. I think our listeners would, would like that if, we, if you expand it on that. I look forward to you running. I look forward to supporting <laughs> oh, you. Oh, God. Uh, you know, after some of these interviews. But we have these situations where they're saying, we don't want to give money to the cities because they're just trying to hoard it 
And I say, hoard it on what? The Christmas boxes behind me are just empty props, right? We're not actually doing anything with that other than getting it out to the people who need it. And that has been a huge frustration as we've been in the summer and fall, because as we saw more situations for need, particularly as cases were growing, we largely were getting deaf ears from other jurisdictions and Washington and our state capitals, et cetera. And so, Quentin, one thing that has been occupying my brain a lot as I'm a New Yorker is this idea of the future of cities. And so in thinking about not just what's happening right now, but what the, the city is going to look like two years or three years from now, five years from now. Uh, what are some of the trends that you think might have been accelerated uh, from this crisis and or just new developments that are going to shape the way cities look and feel years from now uh, that, that people might want to start planning for now? You know, in the spring, I would have said that, um, yeah, you're going to see people try to flee cities. Um, you're going to see kind of a rapid change in how we live, maybe a return to broader single-family housing models, all of that. It's going to be the, uh, the post-World War II era all over again. But I don't know if that's entirely the case. Now, I do know anecdotally there are folks who've left New York City. There are folks that have left um, other larger cities. But I think you're, you're seeing a lot of capture here in the midsize areas. I, I know at least maybe two or three couples that have moved from the New York metro to Kansas City. So what they're not doing is eschewing cities altogether. What they're saying is, you know, how do we manage, how do we balance in a way that we knew a lot of these people being from Kansas City in the first place. I think one thing, however, that you will not see change is the cities are where the help is. What do I mean by that? Um, right now, people who are sick with COVID-19 are coming to Kansas City from all around outstate Missouri, outstate Kansas. Um, what you see in that is that it's still where we centralize support, be it financial, be it health related, be it frankly good policies. And I think that will continue to, to attract people to these types of areas. I think there are a lot of Kansas Cityans that say we are proud of the leadership that's been shown from the city. And I'm not putting myself there, it's the health director, it's others. Actually went to a military base uh, near Kansas City, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, which is just up the road, um, talked to the, you know, the commanding officer on base and his wife. You know, I was kind of honored by the fact that they say, no, we watch you guys for advice. You know, and by the way, he's, I won't say that he said that, maybe some others said that sort of thing. But, you know, uh, a lot of people had told us from places like Maryville, Missouri, which I think is about an hour and a half up, you know, and are saying, you know, we respect what you all are doing. I think it has, this has almost changed the relationship, at least in middle America, between the city and the, and the folks who are out state in a certain way, which is that they see that we're doing this because we care. And if you look at any polling on these types of issues, and, and I do for whatever reasons to drive myself crazy, actually a lot of people like mask requirements. Republicans like mask requirements. A lot of people like sensible policy relating to that. So, you know, I think that there are more people that are saying, you know what, they're just freaking reasonable in the cities. And so I think you're, you're seeing that in terms of the death of the city. I don't think you will see that after this. I think you you know, we recognize ways that we can try to stop outbreaks, but I'll tell you what, I have a lot more confidence being in the city than I do in a small town if, you know, the virus were to rage through. I think we've just tragically seen, you know, deaths there in, in uh, a different way. And because the people go to the city to be treated and perhaps uh, if it's unsuccessful, then maybe it's not processed the same way, but, you know, you have the same challenges. Yeah, if you live in Warrensburg, Missouri, and 
even not in COVID times, if you live in Warrensburg, which for people listening is, you know, if you're in central Kansas City, it's 45 minutes to an hour to get to Warrensburg. There's a university there. It's a college town. But if you live there and you have a heart attack, you're probably being life flighted in non-COVID times at least uh, to Kansas City. And that decreases your chances of survival. And then if you have that same heart attack during COVID times and they can't take you to the city, going back to your point about the services are centralized in the cities, well, then it has that much more of a drastic effect upon your survivability, which when people listening are saying, we're not like saying cities are better. We're just, these are just facts. These are just like services are, they tend to be located in the cities. Okay. One thing I want to ask you about, most people listening to this won't know that early when you came into office, you, did you tweet or did you broad, you broadcasted your cell phone number? Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, I did. I, uh, <laughs> not smart, but yeah, brought, I, I shared in a press conference, which seemed like a great idea before COVID times, you know, if you guys would like text me and I'm, I'm a big marijuana decriminalization guy. And so they'd be like, Hey, Mayor Q, do you want to do bong rips with us or something? It was just funny. And I could laugh it off. Now <laughs> have I gotten the anti-mask people and all that sort of stuff. It's been interesting having my cell phone number out there for a while. Well, I'm curious, do you engage back with, because here's why I ask is because obviously like between this and the social justice movement that got more intense, and that's a good thing in the wake of George Floyd's death, I would imagine that you have received some text messages, uh, probably lots over the over 2020, that a person shouldn't have to have pop up on their phone all the time, and it wouldn't be good for their mental health. So the answer, if the answer to this is no, it's totally fine. But I am wondering, do you engage with some of these people via text? Like, what? how do. do you handle it? I, you know, so I do engage with some of the people via text. It's, it's often a bad idea. Um, I think early in the crisis, and you, you guys know this, like you you want to be as accessible as you can. It's why we're on social media. It's why we do things like that. And at first it's really fun and interesting, but I think um, not unrelated to the president, the current president of the United States, the conversation has become so toxic. It, it has become so adversarial. And so, you know, I get, I get voicemail messages. This one guy, you know, called, insulted my mother for no reason at all, insulted my family, you know, I mean, these sorts of things that, yes, happen, but I probably made it a little too easy for me to, to receive these messages. I got sent a message the other day, you know, because a lot of people are comparing our requirements to um, the Nazis, which is just ridiculous in a thousand different ways. And so they, they like superimposed my face over Hitler's and I'm like, that's just, that's just weird and, and awful, and you're just a bad human being. So I've gotten a lot better um, in the last two to three months of just deleting them. But every now and then, I will engage with somebody, and because you know they're saying, you're shutting down my restaurant. And I say, all right, let, let's actually talk about this. What can we do to support you? Can I tweet out that I visited you? Can we do something else? You know, Do you want to work with me as we try to get stimulus funds for the hospitality industry and for restaurants? Um, those are things, and often people actually respect it a lot. And even during the protest uh, movements this summer, I had a lot of, for some odd reason, a lot of police officers' wives started texting me, which I was like, oh, I ain't trying to get in no trouble. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, you know, they started texting and they were like, you know, it's your fault that, you know, this is happening or that is happening or my husband's upset. And I said, well, let's talk about it for real. And because I'm like, I'm, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. What I'm saying is how can we do better? And through those conversations, we were actually able to start um, better stuff. So I would never advise it to people, 
But at the same time, I've tried to do my best. And if somebody's profane, racist, which happens a lot more, you know, kind of threatening, I usually just delete it immediately and I've been a happier person. I've also learned, hope this doesn't get me in trouble, but the mute feature on Twitter. So I don't have as many followers as Jason, but a few. And, uh, you know, like if I just see anything that is awful, racist, et cetera, I just mute it. I've, and there are lots of people and it makes my days much better. Hopefully that doesn't violate open records laws because uh, I just don't think the goal of open records is that you have to be abused every day. I so. think I think my very cursory understanding is that as long as you don't block them so they can't read your tweets, it doesn't violate most states' open record laws. Uh, but the <laughs> but um, on this question of the business, small businesses, Jason and I were talking last week about the bind that Democratic or any mayors are in right now, but particularly mayors who are who believe in the science and are leaning towards more aggressive measures to keep COVID under control is that you're in this bind where your perfect world is lots of stimulus. And that gives you the breathing room to, to take those aggressive measures like uh, restricting business hours and how many people could be in those businesses, et cetera. But you, you and other mayors are in this weird bind where we can't get the stimulus right now because of the, the U S Senate and in your case, also your, your state legislature and governor. But your instinct is probably still to do everything you possibly can locally, which means that you become the face of shutting down small businesses. And so how have you dealt with this? And do you have any good advice for people who are facing some of their challenges? Yeah, I mean, so a few things that we've tried to do, we created innovative funds in Kansas City to try to support our businesses. We'll probably be doing a few more fundraisers ahead um, to work with local businesses. You, you try when talking about uh, curtailments of activities. Um, you try at the same time to discuss order takeout from a local business, order order a bunch of beer from your favorite brewery and, and go pick that sort of thing up. I mean, that's that's what you almost necessarily have to message hand in hand with what you're doing. But, you know, I, I don't actually have qualms with appealing to higher elected officials to help us too. Um, I don't think it's begging. I don't think it's it's bad. And every now and then, not always, but every now and then I think it has some level of impact because here's the other joy of the cities in a state like ours. Um, you know, the governor's votes don't probably primarily come from St. Louis and Kansas City, but our TV viewing areas are gigantic. So there are all these people that are three hours from my voice who are like, who's the bald headed black dude on my TV all the time? Right. And you just try to basically pitch as common sense of the message as you can saying, there is no reason, even though it's happening right now, why the state of Missouri is still sitting on tens of millions of dollars that can go out directly to support small businesses. There is no reason why my two Republican senators, God love them, can't actually right, try to push Senator McConnell to actually have some sort of effort towards a stimulus to find something that helps support our country. That's the sort of balance you keep pushing. And then you, you try to enlist some of those folks. So that business owner who was mad at you before, it's not shirking responsibility. You're saying, look, I'm working with you. We're doing what we can. But hey, will you sign on to a letter with me on pushing this sort of thing for small businesses in Missouri, which we should all care about? Yeah, it's so frustrating. I mean, like I've told you in the past, I think you're doing a great job. And I'm also, you're, you don't have the luxury of being uh, outwardly frustrated much because you're leading. Um, but on your behalf, and just as somebody who lives in the city, like it is very frustrating to watch politics by kicking the can down the road, which 
and this isn't the only issue, right? Like we see it uh, on gun violence, right? Where, you know, you can put in more restrictions uh, and more common sense measures within the city limits, but, you know, people can just go right outside them and buy a gun. You can, I mean, you name the issue, environmental measures, heck, just funding and revenue. Like I remember back when I was in the state legislature 11 years ago now, uh, when they did the giant tax cuts at the federal level and then at the state level, they didn't want to raise taxes. So then it went down to the local level. And then a bunch of people got voted out of county office because at some point, somebody has to actually pay the bills and they had to raise property taxes. So it's just over and over again. Uh, it's frustrating to watch government just kick the can down until somebody has to pick it up and take responsibility. And in that case, in this case, it's it's you and I appreciate it. Well, you know, it has been interesting because it... Um... You know, you, you look around after a while, and I have had my days during this crisis um, where I just say, people, are, it's, it's almost like it's inhumane after a while. We have the tools right now in Washington to pass a stimulus that can help at least ease some of the pain that people are going to go through over the winter months. And I'll be honest, it's going to be tough in the winter, right? We are seeing this rapid increase in infections in many ways uncontrolled, particularly here in middle America. And you know, my view is, can't we do something to help relieve businesses that are suffering through all of this? And when you hear enough people say no, I mean, it's, it's odd to me. I mean, growing up in the Midwest, where you know, our, the Republicans that we used to have, you know, your Bob Doles in Kansas, that sort of thing, um, weren't unreasonable people, right? There may be disagreements in some ways over certain issues, but still always cared about the people of Kansas Right, being able to survive through whatever economic challenge or world challenge was coming. And instead, you know, people are trying to make a hit on OAN, which I don't even like to say their letters because I want them to have no viewers, or you know, all of these others. And it's just, it is so frustrating because we are talking about saving lives and saving livelihoods, and we have the tools for how we can try to do that, but our country is so mired in this debate where it's also being led by, by people that are unwilling to believe that we had a presidential election and it actually had an outcome they didn't like, that we're stuck just fighting these fights, in some ways, ad nauseum. Well, I really appreciate it, Quentin. Thanks for, for taking the time to do this. Thanks for your, your leadership during this time. It is, I'm sure, not what anybody expected for the first part of, of, of your term, but uh, I, I think you've handled it really well. And, and I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm proud that you're the mayor of, of my hometown. And uh, let's try and make it where you have more followers on social media. Uh, so tell people where they can find you. Yeah, they can find me at Quentin Lucas KC, Q-U-I-N-T-O-N, Lucas, you probably have, but Quentin Lucas KC. Um, every now and then I'm retweeting Jason's stuff, so just uh, get with him. I've known Jason for years, so this has kind of been a cool experience to be part of the show today. But I'll also say this. I thought the job was awesome, Jason, back when the Chiefs were winning the Super Bowl. And I'm like, how do I get this in my first six months as mayor? It turns out you got to pay the piper sometimes. So uh, I'm going through that. Well, but. Mayor, you... just don't worry about it because the Bills are going to win this year anyway. So uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't get too used to it. But 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 I do think uh, I do think our listeners should step up, especially our Kansas City listeners, and create a mask that says this mask is as effective as Mayor Lucas. Uh, I think that yeah, we should start good. distributing those. You're, you're a good on. man. I, uh, I'm going to wish well for the Bills. It looks like you got the AFC East. Finally, and uh, no, I appreciate that. Appreciate what you guys are doing too. I mean, people spreading the message, cutting through a lot of the bull that we have each day, which is what you guys do all the time, is key for us. So thanks again. All right, everybody, wear your mask and remember, 
We all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.